shortly. So let's get our Bibles out and open to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, page 1311 on the Pew Bible in front of you. This is the third week of our series in the introductory chapters of 1 Corinthians. We're calling it Finding Ourselves in the Gospel. Last week we looked at how the Corinthians were struggling with comparison with one another in the church and how it was wreaking havoc in their lives. And today we'll be able to follow that up by looking at how God uses this issue of comparison to lead us into the truth that we'll get into today. And we'll be able to see how prevalent that is in our culture and how this scenario is exactly the same situation we find ourselves in in the culture in which we live today. So let's pray and ask God to help us, and then we'll study together. Father, we thank you for the day that you've given us to come together and to worship you. I thank you for each one here. I thank you for the reality that you love each of us uh, for who we are, the way that you've made us, Lord God, and you call us unto yourself to be more than we ever knew we could be and Today we just celebrate the reality that made all of that possible, which is the cross. Lord, thank you for your word and for the perfect truth contained within it. And thank you for the opportunity we have today to have you change us and to open our eyes to be able to see things we've never seen before and to know you in a deeper and more meaningful way. And so, Lord, we pray that you give us ears to hear and that our hearts would be open to receive and that we'd have courage to obey and apply that which you say. And it would all be for your glory, honor, and praise in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So you remember last week, um, if you look up at verse 12 there in 1 Corinthians 1, where uh, the Bible says, well, what I mean is that each, of you, each one of you says, some say, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or Peter. And so what we saw was how... There was this, uh, this tendency towards comparing themselves to one another and elevating themselves, this competition that was existing in the church that was something that had just came from the culture and just got its way into the church. Now, what I want you to see today is that all of that is very connected to this next section in 1 Corinthians. And what Paul is saying uh, is he's confronting the culture that's infiltrated the church. And believe me, it's so helpful to see this today, how we're so much alike and how this is so uh, just spot on for uh, our situation we find ourselves in today. And what had happened was they had an identity problem. They were finding their identity in, in other things. But that's sort of the result. But in order to get there, what happens is we drift and land there. And the drift begins as we sort of drift away from the cross and toward our achievements or our abilities or our giftedness. Because that's what's celebrated in the culture. And so the culture in 1 Corinthians, if you have your listening guide, 
is just like the culture today. The context of this culture is not an aristocracy, it's a meritocracy. A meritocracy, which means what is rewarded is what is merited. Now, I don't know if you know this or not, you live in a meritocracy. If there's ever been one, you live in one today. See, the way that you sort of climb the ladder in a meritocracy is, um, well, let me just illustrate how it worked then, and you'll be able to see now. See, there were two major sort of schools of thought in Corinth. Now, remember, if you were from Corinth, you were proud because Corinth was just dominated. I mean, it was this amazing economic center and so the economy was booming and the civilization was booming and you had the Greeks there and the Romans there and then some Jews there and this and so you the the culture I mean you were very proud when other people were like wow you live in Corinth like that's amazing and you know what is it like there and how because it was so good in so many ways to be there and so what happens is we start you know, drifting back, we come to faith in Christ, but then we live in this culture, and that culture is always beckoning us back into it. And so there was this Roman mindset. Now, now think about who the Romans were. The Romans were in power. They had conquered the Greeks. And so the Romans esteem power. They esteem might and agility. They esteem the warriors and the gladiators and the athletes. Now, the Greeks were the conquered ones. So it, wouldn't, it would have been futile for them to esteem might and power because they got whipped. So what did they esteem? Intellect. Rhetoric. Being able to debate. Public speaking. And, and all of the, 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 the creative things that can come out of a well-fashioned and tuned mind. And so there was this desire for power and for wisdom. Now, we live in a culture. Now, we, we would, it's power and wisdom. We just probably, we might not use those words, but it's power and wisdom. We wouldn't say wisdom, but we would, that's what we esteem. See, in our culture today, you can be the biggest jerk in the world. But if you've built a startup company and sold it for $2 billion, everybody cares what you say. And everybody esteems who you are. And everybody watches a TV show if you're on it. And everybody reads the stories about what you think about things. And you're an idiot and a jerk. But you made $2 billion. And so we all care. Isn't that interesting? What about... What about... You can be the worst example of a person. You can have zero character. But be a phenomenal athlete. And suddenly you've got everyone's attention, don't you? And you're esteemed because you win. We're just like Corinth. 
We don't. We, 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 and, and here's the thing. When we compare, see, all of us struggle with comparison on some level. And so this is what you need to start to ask yourself. When you, if I were to ask you, like if it were, no, here's better. Let's suppose that you were going back to your high school reunion. Would you be excited about that or would you be stressed about that? See, some of you would be super stressed out about that because you don't feel very confident in what's been going on in your life the past couple decades. And, and so you don't feel like you've been very successful or very productive. And so you don't want to go back to your high school reunion because you don't want to face all those people and you feel like a failure. And then some of you would feel very confident about going back to your, your class reunion because you feel like you killed it. And you want to go back because you feel like you got some things. And so one group of people has assessed themselves as not doing very good. The other group of people has, accept, has assessed themselves as doing very well. And what is the criteria? The culture. The culture determines that. See, you could be the best Father or mother, you could, you could have the greatest marriage in the world. But if vocationally you've been kind of a flop and financially you haven't done very well, you're not going to be excited about going to your class reunion. You know I'm telling the truth. What a shame. You see, because when we compare... Where does that come from? I don't mean the comparing. How do, we, how do we determine how we're doing? You see, comparison by nature always mirrors culture. Whatever the culture esteems, that's going to be the root of comparison. That's why comparison is so deadly. Now, I want you to think about this with me for a minute, okay? I want you to think about how what you expect to see shapes what you see. Have you ever thought about the fact that most of the time, like, you know, if we played the game where we both looked at a picture for four seconds and then you listed the things you saw and I listed the things I saw, some of the things we both saw and some things I saw you didn't, some things you saw I didn't. And then we would, you know, wonder like, now we both looked at the same picture. What just happened? Well, in a bigger sense, in a more practical sense, I want you to realize that most of the time in your life, you never see what you're not expecting to see. You miss it. Because you're not expecting it. Because your expectation so drastically impacts what you see and how you see it. And so what has shaped your expectation? So when you, when you think about validation, like what... What could someone say to you or about you that would be very meaningful to you? What would those things be? 
Not what do you want them to be, but what are they actually? Or maybe a better way to think of it would be, what are the things you absolutely don't want to be known for? What are they? You see, if you were a Greek, the one thing above all things you would not want to be known for is foolishness because they prized wisdom and understanding. Now, if you were a Roman, you wouldn't care about that. You'd care about weakness is what you would never want to be seen as if you were Roman. And so that was that culture. We're in our culture. We have these expectations of things we're going to see, and it profoundly shapes what we see. If you're bored later, do not do this now or God will punish you severely. If you're bored later, why don't you Google the invisible gorilla? Some of you maybe studied that in college. And you'll, you'll see the scientific evidence that shows uh, uh, people come into the experiment and they say, now, there's six people passing a basketball. Three of them are in white shirts. Three of them are in black shirts. And they tell you, they say, now, I want you to count how many times the ball is passed amongst the people in white shirts. And so they start passing the ball. They're like in front of an elevator in a building lobby passing the ball, right? And in the middle of the experiment, a gorilla, a giant gorilla, man in a gorilla suit, walks out into the middle of the thing, looks at the thing, and then walks away. And when the experiment's over, they say, now, how many times did the ball get passed? And they would pretty much get it right. And they would say, did you notice anything weird? And they're like, what are you talking about? And I said, you didn't see anything out of the ordinary? And they're like, no. You're like, you didn't see a gorilla? And they're like, a what? Right there. And no one sees it because you're not expecting to see a gorilla, so you don't see it. It's very, very true in reality, but it's very telling spiritually as you think about what Paul is going to teach us this morning. So let's say that you're in the church at Corinth. Or let's say that you're in this church this morning. And let's say that you would say, well, I'm faithful in church, and yet I just don't know why God's not blessing me. I'm faithful. And I do this, and I do this, and I do this. I just don't know why God's not blessing me. So the Bible would ask the question, well... Are you faithful at church to be blessed? Or are you faithful at church because you are blessed? And there's a very drastic difference between those two. Is it a cultural mindset? Or is it a gospel mindset? Now listen, if you don't think we live in this culture, uh, quickly, this week I was... Actually, uh, this is how nerdy I am. I actually was on the YouTube. I was on Internet. I was watching a video on YouTube, uh, not of an invisible gorilla, but of the, uh, although I've watched that before. I was watching a video of somebody who was, basically, I was interested in some uh, 
some things about the Puritans. I'm sure that's what you do in your spare time. So anyway, I was watching a video, and you know how it launches all the videos on the side to try to get your attention? Well, I noticed one of the videos on the side is by none other than Joel Osteen. And so I thought, well, that's wonderful. And the title of the video was something to the effect of uh, having dominion over your place or taking dominion over your something, some garbage. So I can't help it. I'm a glutton for punishment. So I click on it. I know I shouldn't, but I do anyway. I click on it. Now, the video that I just watched, I think it had like 230 views. And it probably been on the internet for 10 years. Jolie Boy's video has millions of views. Millions. And it's only been there for a couple weeks. Why? Because Joel is preaching a cultural gospel. And guess what the culture wants to hear? The cultural gospel. You see, if you tell people, if they do this and do this and do this, God's going to bless them. That's the culture we live in. We live in a meritocracy. So if you want to fill a church and make a whole lot of money, all you got to do is make the gospel merit-oriented, and everyone's going to buy in because that's the culture we live in. It's not rocket science. The problem is it's not the Bible. It's not the gospel. You see? So if your cultural mindset is what I'm just telling you, you got to think about it because in a minute we're going to get into it. Now, if your thinking is in a cultural way, you're going to be in trouble because you're going to look at the Bible, read the Bible, hear the Bible with a cultural mindset, and you're not going to see the gorilla standing right in front of you. You're not going to see it because you're expecting cultural things. And the Bible will not bend and will not yield, as we're going to see. Now, Paul has a very simple motivation here. God has a very simple motivation. I have a very simple motivation today to bring clarity to all of our lives with regards to this issue. The Corinthians had started thinking. They had, they had drifted off track into believing that they had merited that their salvation. See, because they were, they were so gifted and so good. And so everywhere they looked, things were going great. And here's the thing. You can hear the voice in the background whispering in their ears saying, if God wasn't pleased with us, we wouldn't be so Fruitful and plentiful. In other words, God must be pleased with Corinth because look at how good everything's going. Do you realize how seductive that is today? Most Christians today are drinking that Kool-Aid. Most. If you do this, God will do this. Interesting, isn't it? And so you don't see the gorilla right in front of you because you're not looking for it. See, power and wisdom will win you a lot of applause in the culture. 
But it's not going to do you any good with the gospel. Look at verse 18. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing and to us who are being saved. It is the power of God. So the first thing Paul does is divides. He makes sure that we understand there's, there's two distinct groups of people. There's a group of people moving towards death and there's a group of people moving towards life. You see that? Now don't get hung off course where it says for those who are being saved. Because the cults would use this verse to try to confuse you and trick you into uh, some lie about salvation. Paul's talking to people that are already saved. And so he's saying that for those of you that are being saved, he's not talking about the, pro- the moment that you are saved, which is called justification. He's talking about the process of sanctification where we gradually and progressively become more and more like Christ the longer we live in Christ, right? Right? And so today, I am 100% saved, but today there are parts of my life that still need saving or sanctifying because they're not all that they should be. The same with you, right? So he's talking about sanctification. Now what Paul's going to do is he's going to now reference Old Testament scriptures so that everything I just said to you in the introduction is all going to start to make sense. You're going to see exactly what... The wisdom of God is here, and it's going to be beautiful, okay? Now watch what he does. Look at verse 19. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Now that is a quote born directly out of Isaiah 29. And he, God and Paul, know that all the people in the church at Corinth know Isaiah 29. They're familiar with Isaiah 29, so let me show it to you. Here's what the passage says. 29, 13, Therefore the Lord said, Inasmuch as these people draw near to me with their mouths and honor me with their lips, but have removed their hearts far from me, and their fear towards me is taught by the commandments of men. The culture, right? So what's God going to do with these people? He's going to kill them. He's going to send lightning. He's going to send pestilence. He's going to Because God is a meritocracy, right? Look at all the, they're honoring me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me, so I'm going to get them. So what does the next verse say? Therefore, behold, I will again do a marvelous work. Oh, among this people, a marvelous work and a wonder. For the wisdom of their wise men shall perish, and the understanding of the prudent men shall be hidden. You see what just happened? You see that? God just took the culture and flipped it upside down. He said, I know what you think. But let me tell you what I think. You see, God says, I know you're not looking to me. I know you're looking to other things to find help. I know that you're looking to yourselves and your giftedness and your your wisdom and all those things and your success and all. I know that. I know that your hearts are far from me. But it doesn't say that God's response is, you know what? Well, I'm done with you. I'm finished with you. He responds and says, you know what? I'm going to do something amazing in you. And what is it that's amazing? What is this amazing, wonderful work? I'm going to destroy your wisdom and your understanding and your accomplishment. I'm going to show you that that is 
not the way forward. Not the way to something amazing in me. See, the Corinthians knew this passage. So they knew when Paul penned this, they knew they were thinking, hmm, now we, we really got it together. I mean, this church is booming. We got, we're bringing in tons of money. Everybody's doing financially well. I mean, we're happy, man. God must be pleased with us. He must be or else things would be going bad. Remember? Remember when we first all heard about COVID-19? Remember? You remember the voices. You heard them. It's the judgment of God against us. All of a sudden, everyone had an opinion. Remember? Remember? It's the culture. It's the culture. See, God's not looking for people who think they're powerful. He's looking for people who know they're messed up. That's what he's looking for. See, the only way the gospel makes sense is to understand that what makes it good is we don't have to fix ourselves up so God will accept us. We go to him a mess and he heals us. That's the beauty of the gospel. See, the gospel is designed. When God says in verse 18, when God says the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. Do you know what he's saying? God is saying, I am going to do things in such a way, by design, so that you will know that I did it and you didn't. The whole thing is designed so that you can't take credit for it. You can't. It will not work. Look at verse 20. Let me show you. Look, remember they're comparing, right? Remember back in verse 12, they're comparing. Well, I'm of this and I'm of that and I'm better than you. And, I'm better. and so then, so Paul, so watch how the Bible flips it on its head. Look at verse 20. Well, where are the wise? Well, where is the scribe? Well, where's the disputer, the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? I mean, this is just amazing to me. God takes this comparison and he brings it in and he flips it upside down and then he, he starts redeeming it. You see, remember when we talked about comparison, this is what we said. We talked about how when you compare yourselves or we compare ourselves to each other, it leads to despair. Always. Now, why does it, why, why can it only lead to despair? Let's think about it. Okay, first of all. When you compare yourselves to someone else, inevitably, you realize that there's other people better than you. And so you're going to end up in despair because you're never going to be the best person. Now, now let's say that you're really, 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 really good. And so you compare yourself and you're like, hey, it's not despair to me. Oh, yes, it is. Because you get old. See, either one of two things is going to happen. 
Either you're going to realize you're not as good as you think you are, or you're going to get old, and then you can't be as good as you used to be. Either way, it's going to be a bummer. Amen. Bunch of young people. Man, looking at me. But what happens when we compare ourselves to God? What's the result then? Humility. See, the only thing that can happen when you compare yourself to God is, wow, I'm not that great. And he's really great. And you know what that is? Humility. And you know what humility always results in? Two things. Dependence and worship. Always. See, comparison, it depends on, if you compare yourself to God, it's very healthy. It's healthy. It's to make you humble. So look at what happens. Look at verse 21. For since... In the wisdom of God, the world through wisdom did not know God. It pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. Now, now let's think about this for a second. In the wisdom of God, by the plan of God, by the purpose of God, by the decree of God, from the beginning, God set it up a certain way. And what way was it? The world through wisdom did not know God. You know why? Because it could not know God. Because the system is designed so that that won't work. You see, you can choose to devote all of your time. If you want to. You can make the choice. Some of you have. You can choose today. You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to devote all my time to developing my intellect. I'm going to try to be the smartest person I can possibly be. You can do that. But I want you to understand that that intellect will never make you closer to God. It will never lead you to God. Never. It will always lead you away from God. You know why? See, some of you are thinking like, I don't know, man. Where are you going with this? Stay with me. Because the smarter you think you are, the more you trust in your ability. And the further you go from God. See, that leads to pride. Now, I know you're not sure about this, so let's, let's let the Bible speak for itself. Romans chapter 3. There is none righteous, no, not one. Look at the very next line. There is how many who understand? None. No one understands. Not one single person. God has designed it so that nobody, no matter how smart you may be, think you are, want to be, could be, whatever, doesn't matter what your IQ is, no one, zero people understand. So, in order, so how do you understand? See, there's only one way to understand. God has to flip the switch on. If he doesn't turn the switch on, you can't understand. You can't climb the intellectual tower to get there. All right, then let's drive it a little deeper. You ready? Well, let's go. 
So if you think your Bible study will make you right with God, you've walked away from the gospel. What is... Pastor Tony's losing his mind. Now, are we... Aren't we sitting in the church where all we ever do is talk about reading the Bible, knowing the Bible, studying the Bible, esteeming the Bible, being in D groups to learn the Bible, to grow as disciples? Yes. You, it's still the same church. It's going to continue to be the same church. I did not have a stroke. Are you studying your Bible to be right with God? Or are you studying your Bible because you are right with God? Only one of those answers is correct. See, you can study the Bible every day for the rest of your life and get nowhere and learn nothing. Some of you may be saying to yourself, wait a second, you know, I've been in three D groups and man, I'm, I've been, and I, I'm not getting anywhere. I just don't ever seem to grow. It's just not doing any good. Well, why are you doing it? It may be because you're doing it for the wrong reason and it will never work that way. See, John chapter 5. Jesus said to the religious people that knew the Bible better than anyone, He said, you search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. Now, do you want to know how to understand that verse? I want you to look up there and I want to show you something. You search the Scriptures because you think. The reason... You know what the problem is? Because you think. Because you think that by studying the Scriptures, this is what's going to happen. And where did they get that idea? The culture. You know how many people today think that by studying the Bible, they'll get eternal life? You think that. That's not what God says. That's what you think. And what you think has shapes what you see. And so you're sitting in church going, well, I do this and I do this and I do this. And why isn't God blessing me? And there's a giant gorilla right in front of you and you can't see it. So now let's make sure we're clear. Is intellect bad? Of course it's not. I mean, do you know me? Have you ever... Been in my office? You ever seen my books? You mean, I'm the book nerdiest, learningest person you'll ever meet in your life. No, intellect's not bad. I want you to pursue intellect. God wants you to pursue intellect. But in a certain way. God wants you to pursue intellect in a way that you're not impressed with yourself, but you're more and more impressed with Him. See, 
maybe you, you've been struggling with this and you've been in D groups and you've been, you know, and you're just not growing and you're, let me just help you. This, let me just give you a little inventory to think about, okay? Ask yourself these questions as you're doing the things you do to grow as a disciple. Ask yourself the question, now, is my heart for Christ growing? See, a lot of times people come to D group and and they've spent a lot of time in the Word so that they can come to D group because they want everybody else in their D group to know that they spent a lot of time in the Word. Wrong. Won't work. Won't work. Is, so as you're spending time in the Word, you need to ask yourself, well, is my heart for Christ growing? Is my affection for Jesus increasing? Am, am I, am I, is my dependency on what God has done on the cross more today than it was a month ago, a year ago? See, these are the indicators that what you're doing is working. If all you're doing is getting head knowledge, because here's the thing, when you just want to know what it says so that you don't sound stupid to other people, all you're doing is bringing the culture into the gospel, and it will not work. It will not work. It will not work. God sent salvation to us through foolishness to protect us from the lure of worldly wisdom. Don't you see? You see, the message of the cross is such nonsense. It's nonsense. The world laughs at me and you. Listen, what are you going to do? Why don't you, just for fun, Okay, just get in your car and drive up to Hattiesburg or go to uh, Mobile or New Orleans, go to a university, go to the philosophy department, ask to speak to the chair of the philosophy department, sit down with that professor and tell them, hey, here's, I just wanted to tell you this. Now, I have entrusted my life completely and entirely to a Jewish carpenter that lived 2,000 years ago. Now, he was born to a virgin, and he was fully man, and yet he was fully God at the same time. He was a little helpless baby, but he was fully God, and he was, he was, he was here because I believe in a God, by the way, that's three persons, but it's all one God. Okay, so are you with me now? So he's born in this manger. The king of the universe was born in a manger. Yeah, around all these animals and stuff. Yeah, that's right. And then he grew up with a mom and a dad, a carpenter dad, a mom, some brothers, some sisters. Grew up in this little bitty nowhere town and experienced some things as he grew up. And then about age 30, he embarked on ministry, which... Subsequently, his heavenly father, the very first thing he did was led him out in the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights. 
Then after that, he started performing miracles, and giant crowds of people would start following him. But every time a big crowd of people followed him, he would say something that would offend them, and most of them would all leave. And at the end of the whole thing, there was just a handful of people that followed him. Now, he was 100% fully the God of the universe, and just a handful of people followed him. You sound like the biggest whack job that ever lived. They're going to laugh you up right off the mean. What kind of fairy tale are you believing? Who would even believe such a dumb thing? It's ridiculous to the world. Ridiculous. God made it that way on purpose. It has to be that way. It has to be. See, in his infinite wisdom... He knew that the only way salvation would work is if he negated human wisdom. Now think about this now. God could have. He could have designed the way of salvation any way he wanted to. He's God. He's all-powerful, right? So he could have made a way for you to come to know him. So in other words, you're either going to go to heaven or you're going to go to hell. And God could have made it to where, now if you want to go to heaven... Here's the things you need to do. You need to do this and this and this and this and this, whatever they are. And if you accomplish these things, you get to go to heaven. He could have done that. Why didn't he do that? Because in order for that to be the way you get to heaven, if you could get to heaven by doing things, you'd have no need for grace. And God doesn't operate without grace. You see, the whole point of the gospel is grace. In order for there to be grace, it has to be something that you could never do or accomplish. Now, the only God's so loving that if you're gonna, if you need to make it to where to where Tony Carnes could never figure it out in his own wisdom and strength and might and effort, then you'd have to just make it so foolish that when I got saved. I would 100% know I did not do this. You see, you can't even come to God if you think you're good. It won't work. It's designed to repel that. Verse 22. The Jews request a sign. The Greeks after wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified. For the Jews, it's a stumbling block or a scandal. And to the Greeks, it's foolishness. Now, let's just think for a second, okay? Look, there's people stumbling over the cross. Stumbling. It's like a gorilla. To stumble over it, it's got to be right in front of you. You don't stumble over something that's two blocks away or way to the left or the right. Right? You're stumbling. They're stumbling over it. It's right in front of them. Why are they doing that? They got the wrong lens. So, look, when the religious leaders came to Jesus, and they would always say the same thing, Jesus, do a sign, Jesus, do a sign, do a sign for us. Matthew chapter 13. Then some of the Pharisees and the teachers, teachers of the law, they came to Jesus. We want to see a sign. We want you to do a sign. Do a sign for us, Jesus. And Jesus says, a wicked and adulterous generation asked for a sign. Well, here's a sign. I'm going to give you the sign of Jonah. And just like Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights, 
so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Now, why do they want Jesus to do a sign? Because they're looking for a Messiah who's going to free them from the tyranny of Rome. And so they want to see a Messiah who has power because the culture wants power. And Jesus, is, Jesus has more power in his pinky finger than the universe can imagine. He's like, nope. Wicked and adulterous people want to see a sign. You see? Because their expectation was cultural. And you see what you expect to see. And so when someone says this is a Messiah, they're like, well, show me your power. Now they're stumbling over it. It's right before them. Maybe, well, how are they supposed to know that God was going to send uh, 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 a Messiah a different way? By reading their Bible. See, they all memorized Isaiah 53. And it says that he was wounded for our transgression. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we're all healed. Mm. We all like sheep have gone astray and turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. See, God from the very beginning made it clear to the Jews, here's how I'm going to come, weak and humble and lowly, and I'm going to take your sin upon me. But they didn't see the gorilla because they were expecting the cultural power. And so they're like, show me a sign, show me a sign, show me a sign. I wonder how many people came in church this morning and they're wanting to see something and they don't know why they don't see it. Because you are... A cultural Christian. The world's filled with cultural Christians who are trying to bring the culture in. See, they want a Messiah to free them from the tyranny of Rome. And God sent a Messiah to free them from the bondage of sin. And they didn't even see it. They missed it. They're in hell today. And they memorized Isaiah 53. And so what do we have today? Is it just them that stumble? Oh, no. This is the generation of the stumbler. The church is filled with people today stumbling, stumbling over politics, stumbling, missing the gospel, stumbling over tradition. Missing the gospel, stumbling over works, righteousness, stumbling, missing the gospel. It's right in front of them. Listen, listen, you stumble when you look for Jesus to do something you want him to do. Instead of trusting him in what he came to do. If you can come to Jesus a million times over, if you come to Jesus to do what you want him to do, you're never going to see him. Never. Never. You know why? Because you're using worldly wisdom and God negates that. He negates it. He rejects it. It cannot be. Look at the last part of 22. So we've got Jews that are stumbling over it. Then we've got the Greeks that call it foolishness. So they're just flat out rejecting it. See, they're saying, well, you know, it's the... They, you got to understand the world's wisdom and God's wisdom will never line up. Never. They'll never see eye to eye. Never. There will never come a moment in time where the world doesn't see the gospel is foolish. You understand that? So, so this idea that what we're going to do is if we can figure out how to 
get enough analytics together and, and make the gospel presentable enough and convincing enough and then, you know, that people are going to, that, that it, we can make it in such a, pa- uh, package it up in such a way. Nope, you can't do it. That won't work. That won't work. It's going to take faith. The only way. It's the only way. The only way. The Bible says in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, we'll get here in a couple of weeks, the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God for their foolishness to him, nor can he know them because they're spiritually discerned. You see, you need the Spirit to discern something spiritual. You understand that? Other places in the Scripture, the Bible says their eyes are blinded. So it doesn't matter how you whip it up and change it up and color it up and how beautiful you make it look. They're blind. Blind people cannot see anything. The only way they can see, they must have sight. And the only way you get sight is by faith. You see? It's, it's, it's foolishness. It's foolishness. And that's the beauty of God's design. Look at verses 24 and following. But those who are called, both Jew and Greek, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men. And the weakness of God is stronger than men. For, we'll get into this next week. For you see your calling, brethren, that not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty. So listen, what's happened up until now is that God's shown that the way of the gospel is foolishness to the world. Are you with me? These next verses show that the object of salvation is foolishness to the world. What's the object of salvation? Me and you. We are. See, what the Bible just said is, I don't know if you heard that or not. God just said, yeah, I don't, I don't call wise, good, smart, jam up people. Mm-mm. Now, he didn't say, I don't call any wise. He just said not many. So there might be a few along the way that have a little bit of sense. But for the most part, we're a bunch of rejects. How you feeling? You feeling good about that? See, remember, Paul is deconstructing all these false ways that they're finding their identity. That's what all this is about. And so let's bring it home and and then celebrate communion. What What does Paul want me and you? To find our identity in. Specifically. The cross. The cross. If we understand who we are and who God is based on the cross. We got it. We got it. Because then we know it's not because of us. It's all because of him. Right? We know it. Now, how how is it going to come into our lives? Just let this sink in, okay? Weakness is the beach 
for God's invasion into our lives. See, God storms the beach of weakness. When we say, when we come to God weak and dependent and needy, then God says, okay, come to the cross. It's for you. I did this for you. You see, what the world saw as defeat was actually the greatest victory that ever happened. What the world looked at, saw this man hanging on a cross dead, thought that's the the biggest letdown, that's the biggest defeat, that's the biggest failure that's ever been, turned out to be the greatest victory that's ever been. You see, it confounds the wisdom of the world. God didn't come the way everyone would expect him to come in the culture because he didn't come for the culture. He came for the people in the culture that knew that they weren't sufficient in and of themselves, that they had amassed a debt they couldn't pay. So listen, listen to me. Before we take communion, I want you to listen. So what the cross is saying is that God, on one hand, did something we could never do. And on another hand, it's a test. It's a test to say, do you believe it? Do you believe it? Do you believe Do you believe this crazy story? Do you believe this foolish story? Do you believe it? See, the cross is saying, it's saying, you believe me or reject me. That's your option. What are you going to do? That's what that cross is saying right now. Do you believe me or do you reject me? Yeah, it's crazy. And if you believe me, then you'll come humbly. And in your weakness, His strength will make you perfect. But if you're like, ah, I don't know because the things I'm looking for, I'm not seeing. It's not for you. At least not yet. So see, when we come to communion, we come before the Lord and we say, God, we're celebrating what you did on the cross. And so that's an acknowledgement that we needed you. That we didn't have the wisdom and power in ourselves to take care of ourselves, to fix ourselves, to atone for our sin. We needed you to do it. And so part of coming to the cross is you coming to communion. You cannot come to communion. If you come to communion without expressing humility... The Bible says there are severe consequences for the child of God that does that. Now, let's be clear. Every believer is commanded to participate in communion. Commanded. So if you're not a believer and you're here this morning, you should not do what we're about to do. You should not do that. But if you are a believer, what you should absolutely not do is participate, which you have to do, but not do it wholeheartedly. That means that we're going to stand. Go ahead. Let's stand. And we're going to take a moment 
and we're going to come before God and say, God, we don't have it all together. I don't, I don't have it all together. I haven't been perfect. Thank God you are. And confess to God that you need Him. And if you want to come to the altar, you come to the altar. And if you don't know God, if you don't have a relationship with God, if you've never received salvation from God through the gospel of God, then this would be a great time for you to do it right now. To repent of your sin and ask God to save you. And then you can partake as his son or his daughter in communion. So I'll be here if you need to make a decision or pray about that. And you come to the altar and or where you are, you can kneel there, you can pray there. But take it serious. Father God, we thank you for the foolishness of the gospel. And we, we admit that it is at many times difficult. It's difficult to live in a world that mocks the gospel. And, and if we're honest, there are times in our life when we feel even foolish. And it just seems. And so we, we don't share your name. Or we don't speak up when we should. Because we realize it, it just seems. It just doesn't fit into the context. And Lord, we repent of that. And we acknowledge that your, your wisdom is perfect wisdom. So God, cleanse us of all the cultural things that have invaded our mind. And help us to see the gospel the way you present it in your word. So thank you. We pray this in Jesus' name. The altar's open if you want to come and kneel at the altar. We'll take a few moments and give you an opportunity to do that. Amen. Well, if you'll sit down and get your elements out. Now, I realize that uh, this new way of doing things can be a, a bit challenging, so let's go through this again. Don't peel the whole top off or you're going to open up the juice too soon. Just the clear top will expose the little piece of leavened bread. I believe Zach called it some kind of a luscious uh, filling. So the reason this little piece of unleavened bread, this represents for us in the New Covenant... The, the body of Christ. But in the Old Testament, before Jesus came and died on the cross, this was part of the Passover meal, and it, it represented the, the struggle of bondage and slavery in Egypt. And so that's why it's meant to be. It's not meant to be good and wonderful. It's meant to be flat, hard, and it, it represents the struggle. And so when God comes on the scene and He takes... The symbolism of something that we, uh, as God's people, had done for thousands of years and then makes it new. He shows us now that this is bread in John chapter 6. He says, Do not labor for food which perishes, but for the food which endures to everlasting life which the Son of Man will give you. Amen. And then this cup, it represents... In the Old Testament, the, the celebration of relief or salvation from slavery. And then in the New Covenant, it represents the blood of Christ, which is 
cleanses us from all sin and gives us salvation. And so Jesus, on the night before he died on the cross, he sat at a table with all of his disciples and they celebrated the Passover meal. And he said, for this is my blood, the blood of a new covenant, which is shed for many for the remission of sin. And for that, we say, God, thank you for the cross. Thank you for the freedom the cross brings from the slavery of the culture and the comparison of the culture that plagues us and binds us, Lord. Thank you that the cross is where we find our identity and it sets us free to serve you and to be the people that you called us to be with confidence and joy and grace. And Lord, thank you. Thank you that you on the cross, did everything necessary for us to have life and life abundantly, and none of it we could have done for ourselves. And so we say to you who is able to keep us from stumbling and to present us faultless before the presence and the glory with exceeding joy to God our Savior, who alone is wise, be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and forever and ever. Amen. Thank you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I love you. You're dismissed.